We finished chapters 1 through 11 last week with Paul's doxology in verses 33 through 36. And we talked about how chapters 1 through 11 is, the, is kind of the doctrinal portion of this letter to the Romans. And beginning in verse 12 through the end of the letter is, is more the practical section, how, how we are to live now. But I, I really wanted to spend this morning looking at the first couple of verses in chapter 12 so that we see that there's not just two halves to this letter, they really come together as a whole. The chapter divisions, we should be reminded, the chapter divisions in Scripture are not inspired. They're, they're not a part of the inspired Word of God, neither are the verse numbers. And so it's not as though God, Paul got to the end of chapter 1 and, and, and then he, he drew a big number 2 and started the second chapter. He just continued to write his letter. So when we get to the end of chapter 11, the, the, the temptation is to say, okay, there's this, there's this stark distinction, and there is, between chapter 11 and chapter 12. But what I want to do this morning is show you that these first two verses of chapter 12 really is the anchor that holds them to the, the two together. This is one letter, and it flows directly out of the doctrine in chapters 1 through 11, through the worship of the end of chapter 11, into the practical section of chapter 12. And so I wanted to spend this morning looking particularly, particularly at verse 1. I want to read verses 1 and 2, but we're going to look particularly this morning at verse 1 of chapter 12. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Paul says, I appear, appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping you in song this morning. We thank you for those powerful and rich lyrics that remind us of who you are and what you have done and express to you our affections that have been stirred by those actions of yours, that have been stirred by your grace and mercy towards us, and that express to you our longing to live a life that is in view of that grace and mercy. And Father, we, we ask that you would keep us in that spirit of worship now as we turn to your word and seek to be instructed by it. And as always, Lord, we, we pray not that we would just become more knowledgeable about what these verses say and mean, but Lord, so that your spirit would attend the reading of your word in such a way that we're changed by it, that you draw our affections to you, that you give us a grander view of your glory and your grace and how we are to live in light of that. And so, God, we invite you here this morning. We ask that you'd speak to each and every one of us. Those who are walking closely with you this morning, those who are far from you this morning, God, would you, would you speak to us? Would you draw us to yourself? 
Would you make yourselves great, yourself great in our eyes? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first part of verse 1 that I want to draw you draw your attention to is the word therefore. Obviously, therefore is a connecting word, and so it connects what has come prior to this. That all that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11 now need to have a consequence in how we live. That we're to live in a certain way in response to what he has just laid out for us in the previous section. As we've mentioned before, the general outline in in most of Paul's letters is to lay out his theological section and then move into the practical section. And Romans 12.1 comes right at the climax of that transition. So Paul is concerned with right doctrine, or what we might call orthodoxy. He is concerned with that. He spent 11 chapters laying out right doctrine. But he is not so concerned with that at the expense of right practice, or what we might call orthopraxy. We could say that orthodoxy, right doctrine, will and must necessarily lead to right practice or orthopraxy. You can't have one without the other. In fact, if you do have one without the other, you've probably fallen into some sort of sin or error. Right practice without right doctrine is just good-hearted heresy. If we're just doing all the right things and obeying all the right commands, but we don't know why, there's no theological underpinning, there's no rich and true motive to that, that's just good-hearted heresy. On the flip side, right doctrine without right practice is just good-headed laziness or what we might call disobedience. We've got to have both. The, the verb form that we find in the Greek verbs in both of these sections are important for us to understand. The predominant verb form in chapters 1 through 11 is the indicative verb form, whereas the predominant verb form in chapters 12 through 16 is the imperative verb form. Now, I'm going to take us back to high school grammar for a second, right? I know you thought you never were going to use this stuff again, right? I thought so as well. But what's an indicative verb form? An indicative verb form is something that, that states a condition. It states something that is true about us. And this is predominantly what Paul has been doing in chapters 1 through 11. He's been stating indicatives, things that are true about who we are in Christ. That we are forgiven. That we are justified, that we are reconciled to God, that we are adopted, predestined, elected, glorified, all of these things. These are indicative, things that are true about who we are in Christ. Now this doesn't mean that there aren't indicatives that we'll uncover in chapters 12 through 16. Nor does it mean that we didn't see any imperatives in chapters 1 through 11. But the predominant verb form in chapters 1 through 11 is the indicative verb form. Whereas in chapters 12 through 16, it's the imperative. It's the, it's the command, things that we're to do, things that we are to obey, how we are to live now in light of things that are true of us who are in Christ. If these things are true of us, 
Now do these things. And we got to have both. Obeying the imperatives of chapters 12 through 16 with, without knowing and understanding and really embracing the indicatives of chapters 1 through 11 can lead us to legalism. That we're just doing the doing. That we're just practicing the practicing. That we're just obeying the commands, but there's nothing underneath that. It's just legalism. But, on the flip side, if all we do is focus on the indicatives of chapters 1 through 11 to the exclusion of the imperatives in chapters 12 through 16, then that can lead not to legalism, but to license, licentiousness. That it doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter anything about our behavior and outwardness as long as we believe the right things, as long as we think the right things. And so what, what Romans 12.1 tells us, above everything else, is that apparently we need both halves of, chapter, uh, of the book of Romans. We can't have one without the other. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, makes the transition from right doctrine to right practice, from the indicatives that are true about us who are in Christ what God has done for us, what is true about us now, and how we're to live in light of that. Chapters 1 through 11 lay out the glorious doctrine of salvation, and 12 through 16 tell us in, in general how we should live in light of those truths. The end of chapter 11 that we dealt with last week was kind of the, the crescendo of Paul's teaching on this amazing salvation that God has provided for us in Christ. At the end of that, Paul erupts in worship. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is swept up into the glory of God displayed in Jesus Christ, his son on the cross. This was Paul's doxology, his eruption of worship. And then he says in the first verse of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore... In light of the glory of God most predominantly displayed in the cross, in light of that, in view of that, therefore, Paul says, I make an appeal to you in light of the gospel. So that phrase, I appeal to you, is depending on the translation that you have in the English version, it will be translated in multiple ways. The NIV and the New American Standard says, I urge you, therefore. The King James says, I beseech you. It's the Greek word parakaleo. And it's a really interesting word because the word literally has the connotation of calling to one side in order to urge them or exhort them. And so the, the, the picture that I have in my mind is that of the Apostle Paul pulling his readers to his side, putting his arm around them in order to entreat them in some way, to exhort them in something, to urge them, to plead with them about something. To put his arm around them and make this 
appeal. It's the same word that's translated encourage one another in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, where Paul, Paul says that we're to do this to one another. He says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So there's application for what we're going to be stepping into next week, right? This thing that Paul is doing as he parakaleos his readers, puts his arm around them, calls them to his side in order to urge them in something, that this is what we're to do with one another in the body of Christ, that we're to call one another to one side and urge them in, a, in, in walking with Christ. This exhortation, this, this urging is made, he says, by the mercies of God. I like actually how the NIV puts this. Puts this. It says, in view of God's mercies. This phrase is intended to encapsulate the foundation of the command which follows it. In view of God's mercies. This, this is the why that stands behind the what of the command that Paul is about to give. Paul, in verse 1, is going to talk to us about offering our lives as a sacrifice, living our lives sacrificially as a, as a worship offering to God. Why? Because of God's mercies. Now, what do you suppose are the mercies of God that Paul is referring to here in verse 1. What are those mercies of God? They're everything that he's laid out for us in chapters 1 through 11 as he displays God's mercy towards his people. All the teaching that precedes chapter 11, that a, that a holy and righteous and good and sovereign creator God against whom we and all people have sinned and rebelled and defended, this God has extended extravagant grace to his children that they might be forgiven and purchased back, reconciled back to himself. This is the epitome of grace and mercy. We've talked about the difference between grace and mercy in simplest terms. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. What do we not deserve? We don't deserve all of those indicatives that we rehearsed in chapters 1 through 11 that are true of us who are in Christ. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to be predestined. We don't deserve to be elected. We don't deserve to be justified or reconciled or glorified. We don't deserve any of that. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Chapters 1, 2, in the first part of chapter 3 of this letter, Paul told us in no uncertain terms what we deserve is judgment, eternal judgment. What we deserve because of our rebellion against the king who made us for his glory is to be separated from him in this life and in the next. That's what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. And both God's grace and God's mercy are on beautiful display for us in chapters 1 through 11. God's grace and mercy are on display for us in the cross. God's grace and mercy are on display for us in the gospel. And so, in view 
of God's grace and mercy displayed in the gospel, in view of his grace and mercy displayed in the offering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross for the sins of rebellious mankind, in view of that, in in light of that truth, here now is Paul's resulting exhortation. Was he exhort them? In light of this, in view of this, how does he urge them? What does he urge them to do? He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to look at the remainder of verse 1 here, phrase by phrase, and seek to understand it and see how it applies to our lives. He says, first of all, that we're to present. We're to present our, our lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to present the NIV says to offer. The, the, the Greek word here carries the connotation of surrendering, to laying something down, yielding something to someone else. And that someone else here is God. He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to whom? To God. And what is it that we are to lay down and yield to God? He tells us we're to, we're to yield our bodies. Now when Paul says we're to present our bodies, we're to yield our bodies, he's not just talking about our physical bodies. That's included in what we are to present to God as a sacrifice. But it's not just our physical bodies. He's talking about all of who we are. The life of the believer. Our very lives. And everything about our lives and everything in our lives and everything that we own, everything that we have, everything that we are. We're to offer all of who we are to him. He says, brothers, God has made a way for us who deserve eternal judgment to be reconciled back to him by grace through faith. What amazing mercy that we don't get what we do deserve and we do get what we don't deserve. In view of that, he says, in light of that, because that is true, now offer all of who you are. Present, yield, surrender all of who you are to him. This reminds me of the famous hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Great him with rich lyrics. Think about the title of the song. When I survey the wondrous cross, when I see it, in view of that, in light of that, one of the verses says, we're the whole realm of nature mine. When I survey the wondrous cross, in light of that, in view of that, we're the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. If I could offer Everything in creation to God as a, as a gift, as a sacrifice, that would be an offering far too small when I survey the wondrous cross. Love so amazing, so divine, he says, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. That's, that's what Paul's getting at here. When he says that we're to present, we're to yield, offer our bodies, he means my life, my soul, my all, all of who we are offered to him as a sacrifice. So we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. When we look at the actual uh, Greek structure of this verse, of this sentence, verse 1, what we are to present to God 
is our bodies as a sacrifice. The word sacrifice is the noun that describes what we are to offer our bodies as. We're to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. And then we're given three adjectives that describe what kind of sacrifice. A, a living one, a holy one, and one that is acceptable, excuse me, acceptable to God. But before we deal with those adjectives, I want us to think a little bit more deeply about this word sacrifice. When Paul talks about us laying down our lives, offering, surrendering our lives as a sacrifice, he's reminding us of our primary identity, that of a worshiper. We talked about this last week. God, God created us to be worshipers. He made us for his own glory, to reflect his glory, to give glory to him with our lives. Not just as we sing on Sunday morning, not just in our prayer time, but as we live our lives. In all of what we do, we're to give glory to him. We're to, we're to worship him with our lives. That's what we were created to do. And we mess that up with our sin. Because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin nature, we cannot commune with God. We cannot worship God. That, that part that gives glory to God is dead. And so what, God, what has God done? He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place so that we might be made alive by grace through faith in Jesus. So that part of us that's dead, that can't commune with God, can't worship God, can't give glory to God, is remade, it's, it's recreated so that we are recreated to be, again, worshipers of God. Now we can do that which we were originally created to do. And Paul's reminding us of that here. That we're to live in such a way in view of God's mercies and in, in light of all that stuff that is true of us who are in Christ and what God has done for us in Jesus, that we're now to present our very lives as a sacrifice because we've been remade as worshipers. Now, what kind of sacrifice are we to be? What kind of sacrifice are we to offer? This is where he gives us our three adjectives. First of all, we're to be a living sacrifice. As we offer ourselves, we are obviously still alive which makes us a different kind of sacrifice than all of the other sacrifices that, that were taught about in Scripture. All the other sacrifices die when they are sacrificed. They come to the altar alive, and in the process of being sacrificed, they die. That's what it means to be a sacrifice. So what is a living sacrifice? What does that mean? We're reminded here of some of Paul's words earlier in this book. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, he said, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's, there's, there's a part of you, in coming to faith in Jesus, there's, a, there's, a, there's some, something about you that's died, that's been put to death, and now... You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where you were previously dead, you are alive, and where you were previously alive, now you're dead. And now you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul also says the same thing in Galatians 2.20. He says, 
for I have been crucified with Christ. To, to be crucified means to die. Nobody ever survived crucifixion. So when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he says, there's something about my former life that is dead now. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And so the idea that we are a living sacrifice reminds us both of the fact that we have died to sin, but we've also been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this fact, the fact that we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, tells us this is something that we need to preach to ourselves day after day, moment after moment, that we need to preach Romans 6.11 to ourselves, that we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and all the ramifications of that. We need to preach to ourselves that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I've been set free Now I'm a servant, a willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ with my life. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm a slave to God, a willing bondservant of him. We need to preach Galatians 2.20 to ourselves. I've been crucified with Christ. That part is dead. It's dead to sin. But I'm still living, right? I, I go on living. And so this life that I live, Paul says, is actually Christ living his life through me. So what's my role? My role is to stay surrendered, right? To stay yielded, constantly offering all of who I am to the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, as a way of worshiping him. This is not a one-time thing. This is a day after day, moment after moment, yielding unto God, surrendering all of who I am to God. Someone once said that the problem with a living sacrifice is that being alive, it likes to crawl down from the altar. And that's true. A living sacrifice doesn't want to be dead. A living sacrifice, in order to maintain its posture as being alive, it wants to crawl off of that sacrifice. So what does that mean for us? That means that we have to maintain a posture of surrender. We, we, the, the Christian life is a posture of constantly yielding to God, constantly laying down ourselves, all of who we are, constantly surrendering ourselves to him, presenting our lives to him as a sacrifice. Because there's a human part of us, our flesh, that has been crucified, but it's not yet fully done away with. Why isn't it fully done away with if it's been crucified? I don't know. We'll ask Jesus when we get there. I don't understand that. I don't know why that's still there, but it is. That flesh has been crucified. We're no longer shackled to its influences, and yet it still influences us. This is what Paul laments in Romans 7. And so as this happens... As we are continuing to be influenced by our flesh, we need to realize that that part of, uh, of who we are doesn't want to stay on the altar. It wants to crawl down from the altar. It doesn't want to be a sacrifice to anyone or anything. And so it likes to get down from the altar. But the moment that it does, the moment that it crawls down from the altar is the moment that it seeks to be a living sacrifice. It's living 
but it's not a living sacrifice. There are only two living sacrifices in Scripture, as I recall it, Isaac and Jesus, both willingly and voluntarily offering themselves. Isaac was rescued from being a dead sacrifice by the substitute ram that was provided by God in the nearby bushes. But Jesus willingly and voluntarily stayed on the altar of his sacrifice and gave his all for us. And similarly, we are called to be living sacrifices, offering all of who we are to him, willingly and voluntarily yielding our lives to God to be used by him however he chooses. So, are you a living sacrifice? Or are you just living? The second word that Paul uses to describe the kind of sacrifice that we're to offer to God is holy. A living sacrifice and a holy sacrifice is the Greek word hagios, holy. The word holy literally just means to be set apart. Now, does it does it have moral and ethical implications? Sure it does, but the word itself doesn't define a moral or ethical behavior. Instead, the word itself just means set apart and different. Looks different, smells different, acts different, and it's used for a different purpose, a special purpose. That's what the, the word holy literally means. In John chapter 17, when Jesus talked about us being in the world but not of the world. He prayed for us, and he prayed that the Father would protect us from the evil one that is in the world, right? But he also prayed that the Father would sanctify us in truth. That word sanctify is the verb form of that word for holy, hagiatso. And so we're, we're Jesus prays that, that God would make us holy. And so we're, we're to be made holy by God. Such that not only we do, do we look different, not only do we act different, not only do we appear different on the outside, but we're different. And, and, we're, and we're set apart for a different purpose, for God's purposes. For God to use us in the world however he chooses in a practical sense, what does this mean for us as we seek to yield and surrender our lives to God as a sacrifice? Well, if, if the life that I offer to God as a sacrifice is to be a holy sacrifice, then that means that I'm to look different. I'm to be different. I'm to be used for a different purpose. Not common purposes, but purposes for which God has. This means that I'm not my own, right? This means that I've been bought with a price. So I say no to sin, not just so that I look better on the outside, but so that I might reflect the glory and holiness of the God who has remade me in Christ. I say no to sin so that I might be useful to him to worship him and glorify him, not just in song, but with my life, so that my life can be used for his purposes and his glory in my service to him. 
Paul goes on to expound on this idea of living as a holy sacrifice in the very next verse, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that, you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we'll look more at verse 2 in a few weeks when we come back to Romans chapter 12. But for now, we, we see here that Paul is telling us that we're not to be pressed into the mold that the world has for us. He says, don't be conformed. The word conformed means to be changed by outside pressure. Picture Play-Doh being pressed into a mold. We, we use outside pressure in order to press that Play-Doh so that it fits the mold into which we press it. And that's what happens if we're not deliberate and intentional about being set apart and different. If we're not intentional about this, then the world will, by outside pressure, press us into its mold, and we won't be set apart. We'll look just like the world. Instead, we're to be transformed, he says, by the renewing of our mind. The word transformed talks about being changed, not by outside pressure, but by something from within. It's the, it's the idea of the caterpillar that changes by metamorphosis. The caterpillar doesn't change because outside influences are, are working on it. It changes because of something in it causes it to change from the inside out. And that's how God determines to change us. He has placed something in us, the Holy Spirit, that then by the process of sanctification being made holy, he causes us to be changed from the inside out. We're transformed, he says, by the renewing of our mind, which speaks to a transformation not just of how we live and what's on the outside, but it speaks to a transformation of what we believe and what we think and the motives behind what we do. Paul is urging us here to live our lives as a holy sacrifice to God. Not so that people will look at us and say, wow, what a nice Christian but so that people look at us and they will say, what an amazing God that has transformed this person from the inside out to be different. So that people will look at us and see that our lives can be useful to God and set apart for his kingdom purposes. Now, by the way, doctrinally, we know that we are positionally made holy when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When he gives us his spirit, when he causes us, causes us to be born again and made alive in our spirit, and when we express faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus, right? Chapter 4, chapter 5. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect life. So now we're robed with his righteousness. He sees not our unholiness, but he sees the holiness of his son. So there's a sense in which when we come to faith in Jesus, at a moment, we become positionally made holy and different. But there is a practical holiness that he begins to work out in us, beginning on the inside, moving to the outside. And if we're not growing in holiness in that practical sense, then we're not going to be as useful to God as he intends to, as we could be. Those of you who work with tools know you've probably got a toolbox back in your garage or your basement. 
And in that toolbox, you've probably got a favorite screwdriver or a favorite set of pliers. And it's probably not the newest pair of pliers, probably not the most expensive one, but it's the one that you know every time you reach in and grab it, it's going to work for you. It's never let you down. Because we know if we reach into the toolbox and we, we, we find that, that pair of pliers that's out of joint or flawed in some way or unreliable in some way, we're going to tend not to use that tool. I want to be useful to God. Don't you? I want our church to be used. I want us to be the tool that he reaches into that toolbox and says, I know I can always count on them. They are set apart for my purposes. I can always count on them. I want us to be that kind of people. So let us pursue, church, let us pursue a practical holiness that comes from a perseverance in surrendering all of who we are to God. A final description in this passage of the kind of sacrifice that we're to offer to God, first of all, is to be a living sacrifice. Second of all, a holy sacrifice. But thirdly, he says that we're to offer a sacrifice to God that is holy and acceptable to God. The NIV says one that is well-pleasing to God. That's literally what this word means. I actually prefer that translation. The word literally means that which is well-pleasing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please God. Paul's life goal was to be pleasing to him who saved him by showing up in that blinding light on that road. He made it his life goal to please him. Through his own pursuit of holiness, through his own surrendering of his life as a sacrifice, through his own obedience to the call of making disciples of all nations, through taking the gospel to the ends of the known world, his aim, his agenda, his goal was to please God. And so should ours. Now, a word of caution here, because we need to be careful about the words that we use when we talk about pleasing God. We're not talking about performing for God, such that we have to, to live a certain way in order for God to do something for us, in order to earn something or deserve something from God. That's, that's not what he's talking about, nor is he talking about repaying God, as if Paul could ever repay God for the mercies that that God has displayed for him in Christ. So this isn't about repayment to God. This isn't, this isn't about trying to perform for God and try, in attempts to try to earn something from God. Instead, this is praising him and thanking him and glorifying him in view of his mercies towards us. In light of that, I want to live a life that says thank you to God. In view of that, I want to live a life that praises and, sends and brings glory to God. Not to perform for him, not to pay him back, but because I can't not live a life like that in view of God's mercies. 
And so we ought to, this ought to be our aim as well, putting a smile on the face of God, pleasing him. This should be the aim of our efforts, and it should be the agenda of our lives. And this brings us to the aim of Paul's exhortation in verse 1, because this yielding of our lives as a living and holy and acceptable to God's sacrifice that Paul exhorts us to in verse 1, he says, this is our spiritual worship. Now, that, that phrase that, that the ESV translates spiritual worship is handled a variety of different ways depending on your English translation. The New American Standard says this is your spiritual service of worship. The NIV says this is your true and proper worship. King James says this is your reasonable service. And all of those get at a part of it, but none of them fully convey the meaning of this Greek phrase, the logikos latreia. The word logikos means reasonable, rational. It, it makes sense given the circumstances. It is in agreement with sound logic and reason. The word latreia means, refers to a service that we render unto God. We, we worship God by serving him in some way. So if you have the ESV, the footnote at the bottom, I think, gets at that a little bit more closely and accurately, and that is a rational service. This is our rational service. This is our logical worship. It makes sense. In light of who God is, in light of what God has done for us in Christ, in view of that mercy, there is a logical service. There is a reasonable worship that makes sense given who he is and what he has done for us. And that logical service is us yielding our lives to him, surrendering all of who we are to him as a living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifice. This is logical It is in accordance with reason based on who God is and what he's accomplished for us we owe him this, not as repayment, not as a performance pay back to him, but simply as a means of worshiping him in view of his mercies. This is how we worship God. This is how we ascribe worth and value to the God who saved us by grace through faith, by offering back to him all of who we are. Let me close with a couple of applications to seek to apply this to our lives. First of all, and I want you to think through these and pray through your answer to these thoughts. First of all, we're to surrender fully to God. So think for a moment. Are you fully surrendered to God? How do you know if you're fully surrendered to God? There's a story of a little girl who was in church one Sunday and when the offering plate came by, she put it on the ground and she stood on it. And the usher came by and said, why are you standing on the offering plate? And she said, well, because in Sunday school, I was taught that Jesus wants all of me. And that's true. So does he have all of you? Have you yielded everything to him? Does this mean that Jesus is going to ask you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Probably not. Although that's what he asked the rich young ruler to do, didn't he? 
When the rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus identified the one thing that he wasn't willing to yield to him. And he said, that's what I require of you. Because I require everything. All of who you are. That's what we tend to do as well, right? We, we sacrifice everything. We surrender everything to God except this little thing over here. Whatever it is. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's a secret sin. Maybe it's a relationship or a person. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a thought that you can't get rid of. Whatever it is, that's our exception clause. We surrender everything to God except this. Whatever that is, if it's not yielded to God, meaning we've said, Lord, if you require this of me, I will lay it down. If you ask for this from me, I I will give it to you. I don't need anything except you. You're enough. I don't need anything but you. And so if you require this of me, I will lay it down. I will yield it to you. But if we say that and we put that exception clause at the end, I surrender everything except blank. Whatever it is that's in that blank, God may just require that of you. What is it that you've been holding back from God? What what comprises the exception clause for you? What's in that blank? What would you put there? Whatever it is, let, let me parakaleo you as Paul parakaleos us. Lay it down. Surrender it. Surrendering that to God is both an act of worship as well as an expression of faith. Do you trust God enough to lay that down and trust him with it? Don't surrender it because I said so. Don't do anything because I said so. And don't even surrender it because Paul says so. Understand this. This is not so much a command that we have to find the resolve to obey as much as it is a natural result of considering the mercies of God. That's what it is. That's what it comes full circle to. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. By the mercies of God. That is the basis of Paul's appeal. So if you discover that you are not fully surrendered to God, and none of us really are ever, and God is gracious to show us areas of of our lives that we haven't yet yielded fully to him. But as he is gracious to show you that area that you would put in that exception clause for you, go back and consider the mercies of God. Go back and consider the gospel. So that's the second point of application here first of all be fully surrendered to him but second of all when we find out that we aren't keep the gospel in view in view of God's mercies lay down your lives that God in his sovereign and perfect love saw us in our hopelessly lost condition a condition which perhaps some in this room are still in that hopelessly lost condition where we can't earn our way out of it. We can't perform our way out of it. 
knowing that we could never achieve righteousness on our own and never be made right before a holy God, that he sent his son. And he made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And by grace, through faith, we have died to sin. We've been made alive to Christ. We've been crucified. Now we live the surrendered life. We live this life. We've been made alive to Christ, not because we've earned it or deserved it. We could never earn it. We would never deserve it in a million years. He loved us and died for us and made us his own by grace. God didn't do this because we deserved it. He did this because he deserved our worship. He deserved this logical service of worship. That's what he deserved. And that logical service of worship is a life wholly yielded unto him for his use, however he chooses. So rehearse the beauty of the gospel. Recall the extravagant grace that he's poured out on sinners like us. Consider over and over again, the mercy that he has shown to us. And church, the natural response will be to present our bodies as sacrifices, living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifices to God. And by the way, going back to Tyler's sermon a couple of weeks ago, this is how we speak the truth to one another in love. This is what he's talking about. Yes, we need to remind ourselves of the mercies of God found and displayed in the gospel. But sometimes we need others to remind us of those things. It's so easy to believe the lies that God has forgotten us, that God couldn't forgive us, that we can't live this Christian life, that that this just doesn't work. Or believe other kinds of lies, like how our outward appearance and behavior is what's really important, not what goes on on the inside. It's so easy to fall victim to these lies, especially when we're being exhorted by the kinds of commands that we're going to see in chapters 12 through 16. And by the way, as we're being commanded from Scripture in the next four weeks, as we press into what it looks like to live life together on mission in biblical community. There's going to be tension there. There's going to be press there. And we're going to feel an obligation to obey there. And we're going to say, we can't do this. We don't know how. We're going to, we're going to buy into some of these lies. And sometimes we need others to remind us of the truths of the gospel. We need, to remind, we need others to remind us of the mercies of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as those mercies come back, into our view fully. We will respond in two ways. Number one, as we saw at the end of chapter 11, we will erupt in genuine worship and praise. And secondly, we will offer our lives reflectively, automatically. We will offer our lives as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. Let's pray.